I'm Dick Ostrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee in partnership with the Health Research Board. In each episode, I'll be chatting with experts from public health, immunology, virology, bioethics, statistics, and behavioral science. I'll be asking them to explain how science is helping us to tackle this virus and trying to understand vaccines and vaccination a bit better. The world has faced an unprecedented, life-changing challenge that has been with us for the past year and a half as we battle against the COVID-19 pandemic. Ireland, in common with all other countries around the world, has fought back with the rapid development and deployment of vaccines that can knock out the COVID-19 virus. Some countries have done better than others in the launch of their vaccination programs, but all recognize that essential nature of these efforts. Today, we will consider how Ireland has done with its vaccination program in the company of Professor Christine Lusher, Professor of Immunology and Associate Dean of, for Research at Dublin City University. Hello and welcome, Christine. It's great to have you with us. Perhaps you might tell us a bit about yourself and your area of research. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dick, and thanks very much to the um, to the RIA for having me. So I'm an immunologist. Uh, my PhD is in immunology, and initially I started off in the area of um, infectious disease and vaccines. My PhD was actually in the area of whooping cough vaccine. Um, and then as I moved through my years in immunology, um, I became very interested in just general understanding of what manipulates the immune system so how does infection manipulate the immune system? How do vaccines, how do food, how do ingredients um, and how do our everyday lives impact on our immune system and, and a good immune response? So that's my general area of expertise, Dick. Very good. So overall, how do you think we're doing with this vaccination program we have? Is it performing? I mean, if you wanted, had, to, had to give it a score, what would you give it out of 10? So I, I think at the moment it's really hard to fault our, our vaccination program um, in Ireland. I think we've done amazingly well in a very, very short space of time. I think there was two key things that we set out to do with the vaccination program that I, I'm really confident that we've achieved. The first one was to make sure that we rolled out vaccines in line with supply. So as soon as we had vaccines in, we got them into arms and we certainly did that. Um, and the only challenging factor that we had very early on is actually not getting our hands on enough vaccines earlier on. Um, and obviously that's a distant memory for us now with the hundreds of thousands of vaccines we roll out every week. The second thing that we set out to do was to make sure that the first people to protect were our healthcare workers, our older adults and our vulnerable um, people who had underlying conditions because we knew that these were the most at risk. And I think we've achieved that I think there was a gap we needed to plug in the last couple of weeks, and we've done that really, really well. We've had an amazing July for the, for the vaccination program. So, I mean, it's very hard to score something out of ten. I'd be I'd be hard pressed to not give it a nine plus um, at the moment because I think that as our supply has increased, as things as time has gone on, we've just got better and better and better. We've we're now gonna just about to open up walk in vaccination centres. Um, for, for younger cohorts uh, because we need to mind them particularly at the moment. So I think it's just gone from strength to strength in the last seven months. And I think we're the envy of Europe when they say that, you know, we've got one of the best vaccine programs and uptake in, in, in the world. Yeah, I was going to ask if you know what that number is. I don't know. It, 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 they have got better and better as it went along. Experience is a great thing. 
Absolutely. And the supply has been a major issue for us. But I mean, we're now averaging about 360,000 vaccinations a week, which is just phenomenal given the size of our population. When you think at the beginning, it was nothing like that. And you'd hear that given 50,000, you'd say, we have a long ways to go here, guys. But yeah, they really have yeah, we settled were, down. We were given 50,000 a week back then. Now we're given 50 or 60,000 a day. I mean, it's just it's really phenomenal. Yep. The public would all say, oh, we were chopping and changing and they... They couldn't hang it together and they didn't get it right and all the rest of it. But realistically, you know, the changes weren't arbitrary. They, they were based on detail and fact and data. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, NIAC, whilst some of the perception around it, particularly at the beginning, when the media, I think, spent a lot of time saying, oh, here we are with version 25 and version 26. And I think the public were we're in that space of of kind of worrying about whether we were doing something right or wrong, that it kind of fed that a little bit. But actually, uh, all, all I took from it was, was that we were amazingly responsive to every single piece of new information as it came along. That's become really important in terms of this Delta variant and how we've responded to that. So I think that, you know, our, our chopping and changing has actually been the best thing that we've done. We've been responsive. We've changed our policies on vaccines. We've changed the age group that we make um, certain vaccines available to. We've changed the timelines of the first and second doses and the time in between those. And all of those things have brought us to the really positive position that we're in at the moment. So I think that people now retrospectively look back and say, oh, now I can see why there were so many changes. And actually, it's been very positive. Yeah. Um, a lot of the movement may have been caused by the government listening to what they were told by the likes of advisory bodies, Neffet and Nayak. The decision to accept their word as law became universal. Was that a good idea? I think when you're in a position in government, I think it's very hard to not take the advice of people who are absolute experts in the area. And if you look at the, the makeup of Neffet and the makeup of Nayak, they are made up of representatives of every single um, institution, if you like, that actually has some deep knowledge in this space. So if you look at NEFIT, you're talking about the health surveillance uh, unit, you're talking about the Department of Health, you're talking about, you know, the virus reference lab, you're talking about, you know, people who are expert in infectious diseases, and, and obviously the, the, the chief medical officer. So these are the people who have the breadth and the depth of knowledge to be able to really make um, um, government aware of the advice. And I think that given that government is made up of a very different collection of people, it's very hard to ignore the advice of Neffet and, and indeed Nyack. And I think it, I was glad that that was one of the first things that happened um, during the early stages of the pandemic was the um, was the constitution of these two individual uh, committees um, to be able to act in that advisory capacity. So I think that it absolutely is correct that they took their advice at every single juncture. And I think taken their most recent advice in delaying opening up indoor activities and the fact that we haven't seen a major spike in Delta, I think just proves that their advice is really invaluable when it comes to making very, very tough decisions. And making them fast, I think, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's down to the reliance on science, which is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sitting back as a scientist, you know, to know that the decisions were led by people who not just are scientists, but are clinicians and um, people who, who have experience in ethics, you know, a whole collection of people that were informing those decisions. You know, I think, I think it was done really, really well. What do you think of the 
elements that have done well. What what did you particularly write? So I think um, so for the vaccination program, things that have done that have been done right. I think there's been there's been good information, good communication, and good education to people about the vaccines. I think you know all of the different health authorities have taken time at every different level, whether it's in pharmacies, it's in GPs, it's in hospitals, the HSE website. At every juncture, I've seen a lot of information being provided. Um, even just the advertisements on the radio, the advertisements on the TV, the reinforcement of public health advice. Um, so for vaccinations, I think people are very well informed about va- the vaccination program, how to access the vaccinations. They've used technology through you know, phones and online registration to try and maximise um, the rollout of the vaccination. So although things have been done really, really well, um, having mass vaccination centres, I think, has been absolutely key to the rollout. And we've done that very well. So people are are finding vaccination centres accessible. Um, they're usually somewhere close to where they live. Um, and their, their their turnover of vaccinations every day was was huge. Um, so they've done that very well. So they're all the things that I think have, have done very well in the vaccination programme in terms of engagement with the public and getting people on board for vaccinations. Do you think there are elements that didn't do quite so well? I think there's only one thing that comes to mind that I that I would have liked to have seen done a little bit differently. And that was I, I really would have liked to have seen an earlier decision about rolling out AstraZeneca and J&J vaccines to younger cohorts. So I think that and, and with that, the involvement of the Irish Pharmacy Union in being able to give those single shot J&Js younger cohorts. So if I was to criticise one thing about the vaccination programme, I think I would have liked to have seen it that happened just that little bit earlier, would have given us just a few more people vaccinated a little bit quicker. But I think that we've played catch up very well in terms of even though that decision was delayed, uh, we've played catch up very well. Christine, what was it that NAG actually decided? What does it look like? How will it affect people? And did they take into account the concerns people have about, you know, later medical effects, what allowed them to make this decision? So, I mean, NIAC then decided that um, the Pfizer vaccine would be made available here for 12 to 15 year olds. And they certainly took into consideration um, all of the potential risks and benefits. And obviously the biggest risk that they took into consideration was this new emerging side effect around Pfizer in this age group, which is this heart inflammation um, also known as, as myocarditis. And essentially what's happened is this didn't come to light in the clinical trial that Pfizer ran. Um, in the same way as when AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson ran their trials, they didn't see the blood clot issue. It's only when it was rolled out at scale in the real world data, they actually start to see this. So when we look to the data from the US and they had vaccinated about 3 million in this cohort of 12 to 15 year olds, they started to see incidences of this acute heart inflammation um, where children were presenting um, uh, usually within the first week after after the vaccine, uh, more males than females. um, And essentially they were coming in with with, um, shortness of breath or other kind of fatigue or malaise symptoms. And they were finding this heart inflammation. Importantly, the heart inflammation resolved over time and it wasn't and they don't foresee that it is going to be a long lasting issue. So they would now see that as a manageable side effect. And even the American Heart Association has come out and still continue to recommend the vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds, despite this very, very small risk. And that risk is about 
one in 50,000, which is about 20 in a million. So we would only expect a couple of the cases of that in Ireland, given that we only have a few hundred thousand children in that 12 to 15 bracket. So they, they took that risk into consideration. So that was the key risk from the vaccine. They took the key risk from getting COVID. So even though hospitalization and severe illness is very, very low in these children, we look at the UK data and we see that there's potentially a 10% risk of getting long COVID. And we don't know the longer term implications of those. And then they took in the broader impacts on their mental health and education and, and what, the, what, what the attitudes of, of the children themselves were to vaccines. And they made that decision to give parents the choice. Um, but they have very much recommended that any child in that age bracket with an underlying condition or living with a vulnerable adult, that they would absolutely certainly get that as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Information is power in that sense, isn't it? Parents have the choice; they can look, they can consider. Absolutely. Has there been much interference by um, anti-vaxxers? The you know vaccine hesitancy. I mean, I think that you know the whole period that we've just come through in the last seven months around vaccines. I think has been an absolute playground for anti-vaxxers, and I think I've been personally very shocked at the number and the, like the volume of people who have been very much in that anti-vax space um, um, all of this year. And I think that what's happened is, is that they have tried to look for gaps in information, have tried to fill those gaps with misinformation, and they've really taken advantage of social media um, and influencers to be able to roll out that information and try and influence people. I think, though, that has been very much balanced by Lots of immunologists, scientists and clinicians being able to speak out and the media being able to give them a platform to speak out. So not just radio shows and TV shows, but all of the stuff that we're doing on social media and in press. They've given scientists and experts a a platform to be able to give people the right information. So I think that we've done a good job to try and make sure that people have the correct information but we have we've had to battle with that against people who have tried to spread the wrong information and try to influence people, I think, in a, in a very incorrect way. We've tried to give information that allows people to make informed choices. And I think the way the anti-vaxxers have kind of approached this is is about, you know, bulldozing people with misinformation and scaring them into making decisions. And I think we've done things very correctly in the science and clinical community um, and, and I don't think the anti-vaxxers have, have, have done a great job. I think if we look at our vaccine uptake, I'd like to say that the scientists and the the, um, the immunologists and the clinicians have kind of have won that battle. Mm-hmm. I can never quite come to an explanation about why people would want to do that, why they would want to interfere, provide wrong information and mislead people. It's just beyond belief. Yeah. And, you know, I think... Um, I think, you know, lockdown has been like had had a real taken a real toll on people. And, you know, I think sometimes when I when I'm reading some of this stuff and and anytime I've spoken out, particularly very recently about the whole area of vaccinations in in children, there has been an absolute like avalanche of anti-vax abuse online um, in terms of them, them really lashing out against it. And I think what I've kind of come to the conclusion with is that people have been very I suppose, pent up by lockdown and the impact it's had, that they're actually looking for an outlet for a lot of anger and a lot of rage and just something to fight back about all of these things that have happened in their lives. And I feel like a lot of them have channeled it into this this anti-vax kind of movement. But as I said, 
I really feel like when we look at the vaccine uptake, I'd like to say that they're really not having that big of an impact. Let's hope not. And it stays that way. That's the way it seems, certainly. Absolutely, yeah. The program has reached an important juncture at this stage, I think, when the medicine regulators like the EMA and other advisory bodies like NAC must decide whether children should be vaccinated and from what age. What would they be looking at in making these decisions? They're very weighty decisions, and you'd want to have people completely convinced, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm really interested in the process that NIAC have just been through to make this particular decision about the 12 to 15-year-olds because the normal types of decisions that all of these advisory groups all around the world have been making um, for their own jurisdictions are about the risk and benefit. And it's been very focused on the risk of what would happen with, with when somebody got the infection in a particular cohort or age group, how severe that might be, what their impacts might be. And then you weigh that up against what the risk of a very rare side effect might be for a vaccine. So that's normally what, what um, these immunization advisory committees look at. What I think is really, really like progressive and positive from NIAC in the last decision they've just made this week is that they looked at other factors that are affecting children. So they took the wider factors as risks like their mental health and their education into into consideration. They also weighed up the risk and the benefits of potentially long COVID in this cohort, which could be up to 10%. They looked at the risk of the vaccine with the new issue around the myocarditis that we now know about. But we know that that is a manageable side of, side effect and a very, very rare one. And the other thing was, was that they asked, they asked this age group, what do they, how do they feel about being vaccinated? And I think the, the resounding kind of feedback was that they were feeling worried about infecting other people. And they were also feeling that there was a big pullback of adults from them because of the potentially adults thinking they were a, a source of, of infection and a risk to them. And so there was clearly lots of other concerns going on with this age group that maybe people weren't aware of. So NIAC made that decision. And, you know, it was really, I think, fantastic that it was communicated so well as to why they made that decision. It was about the risk benefit for vaccination with the infection and it was also the impact on the broader lives of these particular cohort that have actually suffered greatly already in lots of ways. And I, I commend NIAC for the decision that they've made this week. And what they've done is they've given parents a choice. And I think that's the most important thing that they've done this week is that they've allowed parents to make choices for their own children. OK, what's the latest in terms of vaccine development? This is kind of casting ahead. Are existing vaccines being refined to make them more effective? Or are there new vaccines in development? How do you think that new products like that might affect the spread of COVID generally? So if we look at what we have in vaccines at the moment, okay, so everybody knows about the Pfizer, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca and the J&J. So we've got four vaccines that are approved in the jurisdictions that are covered with the EMA, the FDA and the MHRA. So that's UK, Europe and, and, and America. There's a further 17 approved vaccines in other various jurisdictions around the world. Lots of those are like the Sputnik in Russia, the Sinovac in China. But there are a whole host of other vaccines that are already approved and being used in other jurisdictions outside of the four that we're aware of. So so that's 21 currently approved vaccines, and they're all very, very different. If we look at what's in development, on top of that, there's actually 89 other vaccines in development for COVID. Okay, so this just shows, I suppose, the 
the vast response from the research community uh, to this pandemic. And if you look at those 89 that are in development, there's 16 of those in phase three. So that's 16, which are the nearest that we will have now to something that might look for regulatory approval sometime in the near future. So there's a huge amount of activity in this space. Um, so not only will we have the tools that we have now, but we may have other tools in the future. So what we have is not all that there is. In terms of what companies are doing to maybe change or tweak their vaccines, we know that um, Pfizer um, are due to start uh, a clinical trial, hopefully in August. They've looked for approval for this, and that is to try a third booster but one that's specifically to boost against the Delta variant. So I think, you know, this just shows, I suppose, how flexible the messenger RNA technology is in that you can tweak that little piece of messenger RNA, which is the recipe for the spike protein that, that elicits the antibody response, that if you tweak that slightly, taking into consideration what the variants are and what their little um, mutations are in the spike protein, you might be able to get a better antibody response to Delta. So they're looking like they're already tweaking. They're preparing for potentially having to roll out boosters. So what we have now is not all we're going to have. There's a huge wave of stuff coming behind us that might help us. And some of those vaccines are more messenger RNA vaccines. Some of them are more of these viral vector ones. Some of them are actually recombinant proteins, which would be very much like what we use in vaccines and other um, infectious disease, and some are inactivated vaccines. So they're all very different, but we've, we're going to have a massive toolbox in terms of how we manage COVID and variants into the future. I had no idea there was someone underway. It's really yeah. something else. It makes you think, oh, but they're taking it's care phenomenal. of us. It's phenomenal. It's nice. <laughs> it's, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Delta. Everyone knows about Delta. The Delta variant has shown how tricky it can be to adjust to emerging strains. Will Delta interfere or block our ability to reach herd immunity, do you think? And what's the likelihood of a, the risk of another such virus? So I think what Delta has done is that it's made, us, made it very difficult for us to figure out what level of vaccination we have to have in the population to achieve herd immunity. And that's because of two things. Um, so remember, our whole vaccination program and what we kind of thought we'd need for herd immunity was all based on the last variant, which came from the UK, which was Alpha, which was more transmissible than the original strain, but still very manageable um, and didn't have much vaccine evasiveness. So the vaccine still worked very, very well. Delta has changed things because of two factors. One, it is very, very transmissible. So it is 50 to 60% more transmissible than even alpha was. And alpha was about 50% more transmissible than the original strain. So we're looking at something that's very different to the original COVID-19 that we ever encountered last year in 2020. So because it's so transmissible, it means that it's easier to transmit, which means that you have to have more people vaccinated in order to mitigate the risk of getting the infection. The second thing is that our vaccines are not as powerful against Delta as they would have been against Alpha. Um, and specifically that those who only have one shot of a vaccine and don't have their two shots on board, they would have even less protection against Delta. So because Delta has small mutations in that little spike protein, the antibodies that your um, vaccination is basically switching on your body to make 
those antibodies are not as good against Delta as they would have been against the other variant. And so that means that whereas we would originally have designed our vaccination program where Pfizer would have given up to 90% protection and AstraZeneca maybe into the 70s, what we're looking at now is AstraZeneca providing maybe 60% protection against Delta and maybe Pfizer providing about 80%. So if you have a lot of people vaccinated, it doesn't matter if some of your vaccines aren't as good because you'll have less cases and less exposure. If you've got less people vaccinated and you've got a really potent virus, then they're more exposed and they're more likely to get a breakthrough infection. So Delta has just made it a bit more tricky to decide at what point will we have as much protection as we're going to have. And it looks like now that herd immunity might be into the 90 plus percent, whereas before we were talking about maybe 70 to 80 percent. And this is another reason why we have to consider those younger cohorts and how we move forward with the vaccination program with them, because it's probably going to be impossible to achieve a level of herd immunity without them. So that's Delta. Obviously, because we know from our real world data and the emergence of variants, we know that there's always a risk of the emergence of a, of a further variant. And that variant is, you know, when variants arise, it's because there's a mutation in the virus that gives it an advantage. So the advantage of Delta was it transmits so easily. So therefore, it became the dominant variant. If we get another variant that is even more transmissible, then we will need to make sure our vaccine program is very, very high and very tight in order to mitigate that risk. The real concern would be if the variant arises and it evades our vaccines. So say, for example, our Pfizer is 80% against Delta. What if that drops to 60%? So that's why having more people vaccinated will mitigate even against the risk of variants because we will have a higher level of protection across the whole population and therefore people will have less exposure. So Delta has made things very hard, but I still think that we can achieve a high level of immunity that will give us all protection into the future, both from the Delta variant, but also a, a good baseline to protect us from what the next variant that comes along is. Okay. Does what you're saying bring us to the conclusion that we'll never be safe from COVID? Or can we actually get to a point where we can be kept away from it? I think it's going to be around for a long time. I think it's something that we're going to have to deal with, but it will become, it won't be the central focus of everything in life like it's been for the last 18 months. It will become an annoying infectious disease that we need to respond to and control when there is an outbreak. And I think that that is the way we are going to move forward. The control of the emergence of new variants, making sure that our vaccination program gives us coverage, and then obviously moving forward, whether we need to have regular boosters every year to protect us from new variants, or whether the the, um, immunity that we have from the vaccines that we have will give us longer term protection. And we won't know that because we haven't had enough time So there's indications that some of the um, uh, immunity to vaccines is waning in some populations. We are getting prepared for boosters, but we don't know if everyone needs a booster. People who are vulnerable might need boosters, but everybody may not need a booster. But we will be living with some variant of COVID-19 
as part, a small part of life, not the be all and end all like it is now. We'll be living with it a small part of life, I think, for years to come. Okay, so it is kind of like the flu, slightly worse or slightly better or just like the flu? Yeah, it will become something that we need to make sure that we are protecting our vulnerable and at risk, you know, against. So so in that respect, it's like how we manage flu, um, particularly in older and adults and vulnerable people during the winter months. Dealing with the virus as we know it's at this stage, it actually required vast amounts of money to keep things on the sh- keep the show on the road, as it were, um, in t- terms of the economy and everything, really. Can we afford to keep going like this? Is it just going to cost vast amounts of money to do the next round and the next round and the next round? Or does that settle down or how does it work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can see now in the next in the next couple of months, like literally in the next couple of months, I think everything is going to settle down. I think that our, our vaccine coverage is just phenomenal and it is going to be even better in the next six weeks. And I think that, you know, things will settle down. You know, we'll still follow public health guidelines, I think, in the, in the months to come. I think we need to be careful going into the winter months that we make sure that, you know, there is no um, ramp up of anything because of a seasonal effect when we all go indoors again and we're all, you know, potentially um, mixing indoors an awful lot more. I think that... Um, we won't be able to say it's all okay now and go back to normal for a while. But I do think that we won't have the enormous cost that we've had over the last 18 months ever again, unless unless there's a completely new virus that we have to deal with and start all over. Okay, so let's hope, let's hope that doesn't happen. But in terms of dealing with this, we will need to have a response unit in public health, in the Department of Health, in, in, in whatever, wherever that needs to sit, we will need to have that monitoring and managing um, whatever variant that we're dealing with and be able to respond in the right way. We'll need to be able to set aside budget to make sure we have a very solid vaccination program if we require boosters regularly. And we'll need to be able to just factor that in as we go along. But we certainly shouldn't have the economic impact that we've had over the last 16 or 18 months. We certainly shouldn't have shutting down of businesses and, and you know, and activities. So I think as they open up the cost of, you know, say, even the PUP and the, the support for businesses, we won't have that cost into the future. We'll have the cost of maintaining a good vaccination programme, a health monitoring programme, and a response unit in terms of managing outbreaks. That's what we need to have. And I think that's a good thing to have in general because we need to potentially have that into the future um, in case anything else comes along. Mm -hmm. People will be relieved to get back to normal. But as a scientist, you can see a legacy from the pandemic that potentially will save lives in the future. There's a wealth of data and new knowledge and fundamental science that's been built up as we fought the virus. How important is this resource, do you think? So I think what we've seen in the last 18 months is like one of the things I come away from this biological crisis with, okay, is a very solid belief that if there is a global problem that we have really smart scientists that can solve the problem and the only limiting factor that they've ever had is resource. So when we, as a, as a world, faced into a major problem, resources and funds were made available to scientists to be able to create a vaccine. 
And to have had a vaccine created in the time frame that we've had, that's had the impact that it's had, is phenomenal. And what it really shows is, is that the limiting factor for science the whole time is funds and resources. It's not ideas, it's not know-how, and it's not smart people. So I feel like we've proved that when we have a biological crisis like this, we can respond where 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 there's funds made available and pe- we have people who know how to solve those problems. So I think that should be very reassuring for people to know that that we can solve problems when they appear. I think the second thing that I that I take away is is that when the pandemic hit, one of the things that I saw was how adaptable human behavior is when it comes down to keeping people safe and what you do for your fellow man. I mean, I think that was, you know, I think that the the outpouring of like, you know, what people were doing to make sure that we were all keeping safe, I think was was phenomenal. And I think that those takeaways that as a population of people that we could respond in the right way in order to keep everybody safe, that we can do that again if we needed to. I think that's a that's a really good thing to take away from this. I think that we have put systems in place that we now know how to do things better. I mean, even though, you know, the, the, the Department of Health and all of the, the appropriate departments that have to have something in the background for major crises like this, even though, you know, there has to be know-how about how to manage these things, it's never actually had to be rolled out and scaled up like it has in the last 18 months. And and I think that, you know, we now have the know-how and we made mistakes, you know, we did things better. We, we found out better ways of doing things. You know, we, we learned from other countries and we learned from ourselves. And I think that our response to something again will be even better. So our learnings are about how to respond in a crisis. So this crisis was a, was a virus. We don't know what the next crisis might be, but we know that we have the resources and the knowledge and the know-how to respond and to keep people safe. And I think that that's what we've learned. And that's the legacy, is that we will know how to do this again if we need to. And you need journalists to complain to the government that we need more funds. And we need all the, we need the public, we need journalists, we need the media to reinforce that science was such a huge part of how we solved this problem And that we need to make sure that we mind our science and make sure that we can draw on it in order to respond to the next crisis. Because that's where this is the first time that science has had the stage like it's had in in, in the last 18 months. Um, And it's been really nice as a scientist that that people eventually have come to the conclusion that we do something very valuable and very useful and, you know, that that it was a huge contributor to how we solved a problem. So I'd love to be able to to know that the public have a different perception of science and the value of it coming out of this crisis um, and and moving forward and that that won't be forgotten Um and I think, you know, when we were when we were in the, the, the depths of the downturn and scientists were fighting to maintain funding, a lot of the public attitude was in, in certain in certain parts of the public was, you know, we need to be doing all these other things. Why are we funding research? I mean, this is not a priority. And I think that, you know, I hope that as scientists, we've changed the public's mind over the last 18 months 
showed them the value, showed them the desire that we want, uh, that we want to help the world solve problems and make their lives better. We don't just scurry around in labs doing things that are obscure. We're, We're in work every day trying to solve real world problems for everyone who lives in that world. And that means that we've had a chance to, to, to showcase what we can do and we'd like the public to get behind us and allow us to keep doing that. Very, very nicely put. Very nicely put. Uh, Christine, I'd like to thank you very much for your wonderful contribution today in helping people to better understand the benefits of vaccination and the benefits of investing in science. You explained everything with such clarity. Really good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dick, and thank you to the Royal Irish Academy. This is the last episode in this series, and I just want to take this opportunity to thank all the really amazing scientists and public health experts who took part in the series. Each one gave us a different perspective on how science has informed and enabled the battle against COVID-19. If you've missed any of them, I highly recommend that you go back and check them out. I'd like to thank everyone who submitted their questions to us as well. We couldn't get to all of them, but hope we helped to shed some light on most of the questions and concerns around the vaccine that came in over the past eight months. A shout out too to our partners, the Health Research Board, who generously supported this series. And last but not least, thanks to you. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if you have a friend or a family member who is still uncertain about vaccines and wants to know more, why not send them the link to this show?